0: All right, please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. We'll be talking about Romans chapter 13 for two or three weeks, depending on how well I can get through some of the material. Um, So we'll be talking about the meaning of this text. We'll be drawing out the doctrine of the magistrate next week um, and then seeing how things go from there, seeing if there's a need for further teaching before continuing on. So let's read. Um, We need to remember the context of what we're about to read. So let me remind you, we have the outline at the beginning of the handout. The book of Romans as a whole starts out with an appeal to the apostolic authority of Paul. He is giving to us the word of God. And in giving to us the word of God, he also reminds us that he has this mission to take the word to the nations. That he is to fill the earth with the glory of God by having the knowledge of God fill the earth. Now, he's able to speak boldly amongst the nations and he's able to do so... And he gives us the thesis text of the book. Verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And there's unpacking of this idea of the righteousness of God throughout the rest of the book. The first three chapters focus on God as righteous judge and his law as a righteous standard. The next two chapters through chapter 5 communicates that we, as breakers of that law, are only able to be saved by grace. And so we are taught about the imputed righteousness of Christ to the believer. So the righteousness of God in himself and the righteousness of God in the law is followed by the grace of God in the gospel with the righteousness of God given to us as an external covering Now we're not just saved from the guilt of sin, but verses sorry, chapters six and through eight focus on the way in which we are transformed after the image of Christ. And so we deal with sanctification, the the righteousness of God being imparted by degrees as we are transformed in the inward man. And so then in chapter nine there's a focus on the righteousness of God and predestination. And then chapters ten and eleven focus on the righteousness of God and his treatment of Israel and of the nations. And now the last portion of the book, the application chapters, are focused on the righteousness of God in display in our rational service, that rational service of believing the word of God and applying it in detail. And so we come to chapter 13, and in chapter 12 we have had this teaching about the importance of humility in understanding the gifts that you've been given and seeking to be able to serve in an appropriate place, to be able to rightly identify the gifting that you have. And so we get into chapter 13 and we continue with this theme of humility, having just ended the previous chapter where God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And so we come to the minister of wrath, the avenger, the magistrate. Chapter 13. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do it is good. And you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject. Not only because of wrath, but also for conscience's sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Oh, no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. We'll be focusing on the first seven verses today. The first seven verses are a classic text about the authority of the state. They are frequently preached upon in terms of the obedience that is owed to the civil magistrate as an institution of God. And it is my concern today to see that it is rightly understood. Thankfully, in recent times, as the government has overreached in absurd ways, more and more evangelical ministers have become aware of the true meaning of this text as they have been pushed to study it and to consider the historic reformed engagement with the text, but historically what you would hear in most evangelical churches is that this text teaches you to obey even tyrants because of the fact that they are appointed by God. And I want to tell you that that reading, I want to show you the absurdity of that reading, and I want to propose to you the reformed reading, the reading that is dealt with in Lex Rex, by Samuel Rutherford, the reading that was dealt with by the Puritans as they, they engaged in a civil war against their own king because they believed he was a tyrant and they had a duty to do so. What we would understand to be the, the reading of the founders of this country back when there was a far larger portion of the population that was Bible-believing. And so as we consider what it is that this text is saying, let's run through it again. And I, what I want to do is read the text as though we are trying to replace the words authority with literally anybody who has a badge and a gun that's that's the kind of general reading that you see as you see this this effort to say if the person is in power Genghis Khan Hitler Stalin Mao so let's read it that way and let's see if this is coherent so look at page 2 I have uh, underneath the text there, the Obey Tyrants reading. Let every soul submit to whoever has guns and badges, because nobody can get a gun and a badge except from God. And the people who have guns and badges are given lawful authority to rule by God. Therefore, whoever resists the guys with guns and badges resists the law of God. And those who resist will receive judgment from God on themselves. Because the guys with guns and badges are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Is that always true? Is it always the case that the people with the guns and the badges are only a terror to the evildoers? That they are never a terror to those who do good. Verse 4, For the man with a gun and a badge is God's minister, servant, deacon to you for good. Is that always true? Is it always the case that the guy with a gun and a badge... Is serving God for your good. But if you do evil, be afraid, because the man with a badge and a gun does not bear the gun in a meaningless way, a way that fails to distinguish good from evil. We have seen the unborn murdered in mass in for profit institutions, and everybody knows where they are. The cops know where they are. Did they bear the sword in vain? when they saw 60 million children killed and did nothing to stop it. For the man with a badge and a gun is God's minister, servant, deacon, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Do we punish those who commit sexual perversion right now or do we punish those who seek to associate based upon righteousness? Which one is punished right now? Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience's sake. Because this is the reason you pay taxes, for the ones with badges and guns are God's ministers, servants, deacons, attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Okay, so you, you want to make this even more absurd, just literally go through and read that and replace the guns and badges guy with Hitler or Stalin or Mao. There are more people who have taken crowns and used them illegally than those who have used them legally so far in history. That will not be the case before Christ returns. So let's read it the other way qualifications reading. So if we read this, as this is a text telling us what a lawful magistrate is. Here's how you would understand the text. Let every soul be subordinate to the lawful authority that is in higher authority. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed under God. The word by, appointed by God, look at your, your King James or most English translations. The word is hoopo just under. It means under. It's, it's When you realize the word that's translated by, appointed by God, when you realize it's literally saying appointed under God, all of a sudden it's obvious that their authority is under the law of God and that their office cannot be used legally and is not legitimate if it is being used contrary to the law of God. Verse 2, Therefore, whoever res- whoever resists the authority... And notice there's a difference between authority and power. Power is about might, ability, capability, what you can do. Authority is about right, lawful order. Are you given authorization? Are you allowed to do this? I can take something out of your car. If you give me permission, I'm authorized. If I don't have your permission, it's theft. I have the power to do it, assuming you're not there to resist me. I have the power to do it, but whether I have the authority to do it or not depends upon whether you've authorized me. And so, we're talking about authority here. Verse 2, Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. You see how logically obvious that is? You who resist the thing that's been authorized by God, you're resisting the law of God. You're resisting the ordinance of God. And those who resist the law order of God will bring or receive judgment on themselves for rulers like those who use lawful authority are not a terror to good works notice the word for the word for is an argument word if you read this in the tyrant way okay where this justifies obedience to tyrants the argument does not make any sense at all it doesn't follow When you read this as talking about the law order, the authorization by God to civil magistrates to exercise a limited and delegated authority, then the argument starts to make sense. Okay, so God's appointed these people under him. Therefore, if you resist them, you're resisting God. And rulers, the ones in authority, by definition, if they're lawful, are not a terror to good works. They're a terror to evil. That's what they've been authorized to do. They're not authorized to terrorize good works they are authorized to terrorize crime. The lawful magistrate's a terrorist against crime. That's his job. That's what he's supposed to do. Do you want to be unafraid of the lawful authority? Do what is good, and you will pray you will have praise from the same. But there's lots of righteousness in the land that is not getting praised by existing magistrates. The lawful magistrate is supposed to punish crime and supposed to praise what is good. And so in praising what is good, that's this sort of public application of the word, not that the magistrate is taking the ministry of the word into his own hands, but the very writing of laws says this is good and this is bad. And when you write a law, you are praising some things, and you are condemning other things by the very nature of it, and then when you execute those laws, and when the judiciary makes judgment according to those laws, and then when the punishment is administered by the executive branch, right? we have each of those steps as a praising and a condemning. And so the very nature of the state is such that it is praising or condemning. Verse 4, For he, the lawful authority, is God's minister to you for good. That makes sense. The one who's using the lawful authority to punish crime and to protect the innocent is seeking your good. He is making it so that you can do what is good without fear in the land. So that you can walk down the street and tell people the gospel and not be punished. And he is making it so that those who do evil are punished. He's seeking your good. The law teaches us how to seek each other's good. So he's applying the law of God. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he, the lawful authority, does not bear the sword in vain. Right? The lawful authority can be differentiated from the unlawful authority in that he is a terror to evil and he uses the sword and the sword is the implement by which he helps to make it so that there's a differentiation between the righteous and the wicked in the land. He arrests the wicked and brings them to punishment before a public trial. He differentiates between evil and righteousness. For he, the lawful authority, is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience's sake. That makes perfect sense. This guy is given authority, and God has empowered him. He uses the sword to punish. You should be afraid of that punishment. But you should also be afraid of violating God's ordinance. And if you think about the magistrate's authority being an extension of the law of God, then if that law contradicts the law of God, obviously the law of God cannot be broken. It does not contradict itself. So it's not as though you can have a commandment from God to do A and a commandment from the magistrate to not do A, and those can somehow fit together. The obedience to the ordinance of God is what is to be followed. And then when we look at that, we say, well, the lawful magistrate's going to not punish that. He's going to praise it. And so that's what's happening. You read this, it's listing the qualifications of magistrates that have to be obeyed. And do you see how important this would be for the early church? When they are going through a time where the magistrate right then, the early reign of Nero, was a very peaceable time. And then Nero went off the deep end. And after Nero went off the deep end, he crucified and burned Christians. He crucified them and lit them on fire while being crucified at parties he attended in his own gardens Right, these are the kinds of behaviors there was a systematic persecution of Christians and what happened with Nero is also a cooperation with the Jews that had rejected Christ to punish Christians and to persecute them throughout the empire Nero's relations he was surrounded by he had a Jewish wife He had Jewish advisors who had rejected Christ. There's there's historical documents talking about the Jews rioting in the time of Nero over a man named Christus. And so we look at this and we see this is a time when instruction about how to deal with oppressive states was extremely valuable. So they would know, when do they need to obey? And when can they flee? When can they resist? When can they say No. If the church had obeyed the state when it ordered that Christianity be stopped as an illegal sect, if Christians had obeyed when the Roman Empire penalized the ownership of Christian writings, including the scriptures, if when Judaism became an illegal religion and Christianity was attached to that in some ways and received persecution under that If that, when that happened, the same things occurred and Christians obeyed, obedience to God would not have survived. And so the law of God does not contradict itself. It does not command us to obey the magistrate and to also obey God and not recognize as a possibility of contradiction. This text is teaching us how to recognize magistrates that are illegitimate verse five therefore you must be subject not only because of wrath but also for conscience sake for because of this because the lawful authority executes lawful judgment in avenging wrongs as a service to god and to the governed right that's that's the this because of what was said before you also pay taxes For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. That's an argument. It doesn't make any sense unless there's a good work being done that you owe payment for. The Bible says that a workman is worthy of his wages. It talks about how you shall not muzzle an ox while he treads out the grain. The same thing that would make you reward a faithful minister, that would make you reward a faithful servant, is the thing that makes you reward a faithful magistrate. And so you pay taxes because the taxes pay for the continual process of praising what is good, And punishing crime. That's what taxes are for. Render therefore, notice the continuing of an argument, therefore, argumentative terms. Render therefore to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So now, having looked at those, I hope it's clear to you which reading is absurd and which reading is clearly scriptural. It fits with the rest of Scripture. And so now let's walk through these verses in more detail and find more application because this is a question that we have much to do with in our time. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by or under God. Okay, so let every soul be obedient under the authority that's higher in authority. That's, that's kind of a more literal translation um, Every human soul is subject to a higher authority of some right. Even an emperor is under God. And his office, his legitimacy, they both depend upon the law of God. Everyone needs to understand what his station is and to act according to his station. And so in order to do that, you have to know who you owe loyalty to. Who are the people who are in authority that you are obligated to obey? Because if you obey people that you ought not to be loyal to, you are by definition disloyal to the one you ought to obey. You cannot serve two masters. And so if you serve unlawful authority, you will be rejecting the loyalty that you owe to Jesus Christ. So we have to know who these higher authorities are. This requires the man to not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. So there's a tendency to want to throw off all authority. The Bible is not teaching anarchy. It very clearly teaches that there is authority given by God to humans in offices. The individual is given authority to exercise dominion over the matter of the earth, including over animals. The household has that authority And has an authority where the head of house is master of the house, is the husband of a wife, and perhaps a father of children. Those are three offices that he holds in the household. The covenant institution of the household is established when God creates marriage. And when he does that, he says that the head of house is responsible for the property of that household. And then we see in Proverbs and elsewhere the duty of passing on an inheritance to children and children's children, to be able to be hospitable, to have something to give to others who are in need, the development of property in the home, and the hiring of servants. Those are the duties of a master of the home, to see that everyone in the home is profitably employed to the performance of dominion good. As a husband, he is the head of his wife, has a duty to wash her with the word and to serve her As a leader, prophet, priest, and king, speaking truth and correcting error, providing holy relationship without profanation through adultery, the careful guarding, self-sacrificial service as a priest, praying for his wife as a priest. As a king, he is to provide and protect. If there is danger, he takes it to save her. Those are the duties of a husband, and a father must provide enculturation for the children, discipline, fear of the Lord, the teaching of the Word of God, to raise them up in the enculturation of God, to train them up, to give them work to do, to help them to be ready by serving effectively in the home to be ready as heirs, to take the increased dominion of their father that came before them, and to go farther and to do more to glorify God than what was done in the previous generation. Guarding what has been attained to. That is what the father is training the children to do. The wife is the queen of the home, she is the mistress, she is second in authority over the property. She doesn't just have delegated authority from the husband, she's a covenantal place established in the law of God. She is a wife and has rights. Over her husband in certain ways. And she is a mother. And she has duties and authority over those children. And So they reign together. You read Proverbs 31 about the way that she as queen works together with her husband. And there was a glorious reign and real authority in the household. Those are created before the fall. The church as distinct from the world comes into existence in Genesis 4. When Cain kills Abel and flees the city of man and flees the city of God and starts the city of man. And it says immediately afterwards that they called to God. In those days is when they began to call upon God. It wasn't the first time there was prayer. It wasn't the first time there was sacrifice. It was the first time there was separated worship where part of humanity was the world and not a part of the church. And so the authority of the church exists there with the word and the keys to boot out those whose profession is shown to be hypocritical or who do not make profession or profane without repentance. And so we see the state established in Genesis 9 where the earth is filled with violence as the city of man without the restraint of the state. There is murder that fills the earth, blood and violence. And so the state is put into existence to restrain that because without the state the church will be wiped out. So God providentially planned to preserve the church and have the magistracy established by his law to stop evildoers, to punish criminals, to protect the church, that the gospel might be preached without harassment. Because we know the tendency of wicked men back from Genesis 4 when Cain killed Abel. The right worship of God and the favor of God upon the church, the blessings that the church receives in the world Cause the world to be jealous, to hate. And even the light and gentle judgments of the church to not do this evil thing are hated, like what happened in Sodom, where Lot was told that he was always judging them, come into the city, just because he wanted to stop his guests from being harassed, from being horribly assaulted. So that view. Appreciating lawful authority is not anarchy. Anarchy wants to turn earth into hell. It is a lie about man being inherently good. We are fallen and authority restrains the wickedness of men. But because men are wicked, that authority must be restrained. It's common to talk about how power corrupts. But we seem to forget about it sometimes when we're talking about people who desire to enter office, to take other people's goods and hand them to somebody else. We talk about how money is dangerous and there's corruption in business. There's corruption in the state too. There's corruption in business, which is why we need the state. And there's corruption in the state, which is why it must be limited. And so these things, these are things that must be thought about. Now, the second part of verse 1 says, there is no authority except from God. There is no authority except from God. This establishes a regulative principle of authority. You do not have any authority. The household does not have any authority. The church does not have any authority. The state does not have any authority unless it was delegated by God. And do you know where we find that delegated authority? In the Bible. If somebody claims they have delegated authority from some other place, they're lying. They're tyrants. Or they are rebellious, seeking to throw off lawful authority. The authority is given in the law of God, which is a part of the Word of God. And the Word of God is sufficient. And so we know what authority there is because it's granted by God in His law. The law of God does not contradict itself, so the authority of the ruling person can never go against God. All orders that are contrary to the law of God are invalid, and civil magistrates can become disqualified just like officers in the church or the household can become disqualified and may be removed. And in some situations must be removed. Now, what I didn't put there was, I said, you don't listen to rules, to laws that contradict the law of God. And that's sufficient if you think about it enough. But let me draw that out and say what I said a minute ago again. If they give you, if an authority gives you a command that cannot be proven to be something they have the authority to order you have no duty to obey. So if I tell you right now, I say, I'm your pastor, and I want you to replace your tires with white wall tires, because they make me happy. The level of obedience you owe me is to laugh in my face. Because I have no authority to tell you to do that. There is no lawful authority for me to tell you something about your property that is not commanded in the law of God. Now if I tell you you are not feeding your children you need to feed your children that's something about your property and about the children that are under your authority and the law of god requires you to do it and if you don't do it i have a lawful cause to bring charges against you to call you to appear before a church court to give you a public trial and to pronounce rebuke and ultimately excommunicate you if you're found guilty and that is lawful and it brings the curse of god on your head lawful authority The state is bound in the same way. There's a definition for crimes. They have the authority to punish crimes. So let's keep going. Verse 2, Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring or receive judgment on themselves. Since God has appointed authorities under his law, the one who resists God's lawful officer is performing uh, the one who resists God's lawful, lawful officer, while that officer is performing lawful work, that person is resisting the law of God. Those who resist the law of God will receive judgment on themselves. Verse 3, "...for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil." Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. All right. So, because lawful officers do not punish good works, lawful officers punish evil works... That's a reason why we are to see the authority as coming from God. This is, again, this is a marker. You know a magistrate is a lawful magistrate when he's punishing crime and not punishing righteousness. Do you want to be unafraid of the lawful authority? Do what is good and you will be, you will be praised by the lawful authority. So, does this mean you will avoid any type of persecution? Does this mean that no person who has a badge and a gun, no person who has a crown and a thorn, sorry, not a crown and a thorn, a crown and a throne, this does not mean that anybody who has some claim to power will not punish you. All who seek to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted in this life. So, living righteously does not guarantee that everybody with power will leave you alone. It helps you to figure out which powers are legitimate. Now, if you know which ones are legitimate and which ones are not, that helps you to know which ones to rally around. That helps you to know which ones will protect you, which ones you should heed if they call for a deputization of people to help with a crime, or a calling of the militia to be able to resist tyranny or invasion. It is important that we have godly lesser magistrates. If we don't have them, who will call? Who will gather? Who will lead resisting against evil? We have been blessed by God with a Republican system, with the ability to elect very low-level magistrates if we as Christians fail to have any godly magistrates that can resist tyranny and say no to evil, then where on earth will Christians do such a thing? The church's job as the church is not to organize political activism, but Christians ought to be magistrates, and Christians ought to see that Christian rulers are made available to help to resist evil. Now, one of the big, the sticky question, the sticky question, when you're talking about praising what's good and punishing evil, which evil should be punished? Because, let's be honest, if all evil were punished by the magistrate, we'd all be on the flogging post 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Hopefully we'd give him the Sabbath off. So, we have to know the difference between sin and crime, or else... No flogging post factories in the world will be ever able to take a rest. So what are crimes? Well, point 4C. All crimes are biblical sins, but not all biblical sins are biblical crimes. Right? So if I covet after your car, I'm sinning. If I steal your car, I am committing a crime. That distinction sounds very common sense, and so we feel like we can figure these things out. We are the people. Wisdom was born with us. It will die with us because we know the difference between stealing and coveting. But we have just inherited a Christian tradition where the Bible has been applied in Western civilization across centuries, and the difference between sin and crimes have become fairly clear through centuries of effort and reading and replying of the Bible. But very few people now know how to actually differentiate between A sin and a crime. If I actually say, what's the difference? Where can you find it? What in the Bible helps you to see the difference? Most people don't know how to answer the question. So this is a very important thing. Some sins are more grievous than others. And the sins that God has attached civil penalties to are crimes. Hating a man in your heart breaks the sixth commandment. It's a type of murder, but it's not criminal murder. You murder the guy you're supposed to be executed. There's a big difference. You attack him and damage his arm. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand. That's the justice of the law of God that shows us the maximum penalty. But you know, the law also establishes that maximum penalties is a right by victims to be able to trade that out. So oftentimes, think about this, if you're a victim and somebody's harmed you, Uh, Do you want to claim tooth-for-tooth, or would you rather receive monetary reward from them? And so you say, tell you what, as opposed to that penalty, if you give me X number of shekels, then as opposed to seeing you harmed, I will say that's satisfaction of my legal rights. So those are the types of things that the law of God puts into place. Now, the general response is, we've all been taught to think that eye-for-eye, tooth-for-tooth, That's not justice. That's harsh. Okay, so was the God of the Old Testament unjust? Like, Let's examine our problem with this for a second. It was okay for God to be mean in the Old Testament. But now he's nice. And so as a result, the government can punish people however they want. They can just Make up the crimes and make up the penalties. This is nice God's civil order. You know who that's nice to? Kings. It's not nice to those who are under them. If we do not know what just penalties are, if we do not know what maximum penalties are, if we don't know the rights of victims, then how do we know if the magistrate is serving those they rule or not? So defining a crime, the key answer there is a crime is that which has a civil penalty attached to it in the law of God. And you know, it's interesting, if you don't read the Old Testament, you won't find very many crimes. So, the just penalties, we are given a maximum penalty for crimes in the law. Whenever the the penalty is listed, that's the maximum penalty for that type of crime. And there are some crimes that have a minimum penalty. For example, murder requires execution. So those are things that are established in the law and without them you have no way of limiting the state in terms of what it can punish. And you have no way of limiting the maximum punishments. And the, the law of Moses is the most rational, reasonable, coherent set of law you will ever find. Now the civil laws of Israel are not to be taken line by line, word for word, and applied to the United States of America. There are principles of justice that you find in them. And so the goal is to figure out what are the technological things and what are the geographic things that are associated specifically with Israel, and you remove them And the principles of justice are what remain. And that is the common law of nations. That is the general equity of the civil law. American common law, which is referred to in the American Constitution, comes from Puritans doing that. The Puritans would have these courts where they would deal with the fact that the the crown would try to impose tyrannical things and the Puritans would mitigate the tyranny of the crown by using the Bible to say that's not just, here's the just outcome. And so they would overrule the crown and local courts. And that's why British justice and the common law were beloved by the people and was actually the base of Puritan political power. When Puritans would administer just judgments in local courts, even those who were not Puritans appreciated the Puritan administration of justice. And it didn't just start there. It goes back far earlier, even to Alfred the Great, who established the law of the Bible in England Alfred the Great was differentiated from the Normans, the Norman conquerors that that came after him, Alfred built walls around towns the Normans the Frenchmen who came and conquered Britain they built walls around mansions next to towns one is very useful to govern and and tyrannize a town, having a mansion with a wall around it next to a town The walls around the town make it so that you as the leader are responsible for the well-being of that town and defending the people is how you defend yourself. So, the value of American common law comes down from the fact that its origins are the attempts to apply the Bible as a way of restraining government and of finding lawful solutions to criminal behaviors by individuals. Only the law of God is sufficiently wise to show us how to deal with all situations. So, verse 4 He is God's minister to you for good, but if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. So, we again, we talked about Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. That's where the state is established. And we need to remember that this discussion of the, the, the magistrate, the, the state as being God's minister, an avenger, he's a minister of wrath. We have in chapter 12 been told something. Go to page 5, a okay, Roman numeral I there. Let me read you this text. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends upon you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves but rather give place to wrath. That give place to wrath is give place to the providential wrath of God, which includes the magistrate's sword. Because that's the ordinance that God has given for vengeance. So, continue on. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. What is the magistrate again? He's God's minister, he's God's servant, he's God's deacon. For what? To avenge. God owns vengeance, and he hands vengeance to be administered by the state. That's the job of the state. Notice it does not say the state is a minister of long lists of bureaucratic rules that are supposed to prevent wrongdoing. Notice it doesn't say the state is the minister of spot checks to see if you're in compliance. It says that the state is the minister of wrath, an avenger. Vengeance comes after the crime. Bureaucratic institutions designed to stop pre-crime or to just check to make sure everything's going okay. Would you mind opening your trunk? That is not a ministry of wrath avenging. That is seeking to check for compliance The state is kept small by hearing charges from two or three witnesses and punishing criminals upon sufficient evidence. If the state tries to keep you safe, you won't be. If the state tries to keep you safe, you will be a slave. The only amount of power that's sufficient to keep you safe is omnipotence and the state will never get there. So in their drive to get to be all-powerful, they will take your liberties. Do you know that you're in competition with the government for your liberties? Only one person has the authority to do a or not, and when the government says we're the ones, all of a sudden your liberty to do that is taken. When the government takes liberties that are not given to it by God... They are stealing them. There are times when there have been negligent governments. Our government is negligent about all the things it's supposed to do and does lots of things it's not supposed to do. If we take that seriously, we understand the extent to which there has been a deformation of the state in our time. And so we see the need for sig- significant reform, and the only way that, that reform occurs is is by reformation of individuals, households, and churches, which can then exercise influence with the word of God on the culture and exercise dominion in such a way so as to be able to rule property, so as to bring about order in local places. And so it is our duty to exercise dominion effectively over our property so that we have extra time and resources that we can use to see godly law order put into place. Now, deacons in the church, they minister mercy in material things. Elders minister mercy in spiritual things. Magistrates minister wrath with the physical sword. And we should be thankful for that. Because a lawful magistrate does not wield the sword in vain, but punishes evil and protects good. Could you imagine how much more restful you would feel that were actually done in our land so I need to close out I'm running out of time but I want to point out to you a way of thinking about justice uh, that is often talked about by philosophers and the Bible gives us an order for these things people will talk about should the duty of the state be to focus on restitution, you know, giving back to people what they've lost should they focus on retribution, just punishment should they focus on deterrence like stopping future crimes uh, and should they focus on rehabilitation, helping the wrongdoer to become better? Well, I think the biblical order is exactly that, restitution first, right the wrong as much as possible, give back to the one who lost, which is, why the, which is why the Bible, as opposed to saying if you steal something, you go to prison, says if you steal something, pay back a multiple. Oh, you don't have it? Then you need to provide forced service to that person until you've paid it back. We, we go, oh, it's slavery. What is Prison. Slavery that's not allowed to be productive. Here is a concrete box. Till that. That's what prison is. So prison is an unbiblical system. You, prisons are for the purpose of holding people while they're waiting a trial, if they're going to be hurt before their trial, or if they're a flight risk. And you give them a quick trial. The idea that putting a bunch of bad people in concrete boxes together will make them better is the dumbest thing I have ever heard in my life. It's like bad company makes you better. Being not productive and trained into idleness will make you a productive individual. Like the nonsense. Restitution is first. Retribution A penalty that fits the crime is hard to bear. Second, that's why you can't pay anybody back for death. And since you can't restore that person, execution is the just penalty. The effect of the criminal system in the Bible is that it deters evil without deterring righteousness, without creating a huge burden on individuals. It causes fools to become wise because they witness swift public displays of pain on the wicked and the comfort and the protection of the civilly innocent. This supports the the praising and honoring of what is good. You know, capital punishment is sometimes people have done all these psychology tests and they say, you know, when we surveyed criminals, none of them said that they were deterred by capital punishment. Well, they're the ones that were dumb enough to keep doing it. What about the ones who didn't commit the crime? Could you read their minds? And in addition to that, I'll tell you what, the one that was executed was certainly deterred from any future murders. You know, if you're familiar at all with bell-shaped curves and the distribution of things, the overwhelming majority of crimes are committed by a very small number of people. Criminal penalties are designed by God to eliminate as small of a portion of the population as possible while retaining civil order God is wiser than men social scientists are not wiser than God God knew about distribution curves because he made them and he didn't need somebody in the 1900s or Pareto in the 1800s to tell him the 80-20 rule Rehabilitation is best accomplished by restoring wrongs, the pain of, restitu- of retribution, and the fear of repeat punishment as a deterrent. The encouragement of praising what is good is all fit together to provide some rehabilitative effect. And even criminals that are to be executed are to be encouraged to repent before they die. The godless tend to turn to rehabilitation and deterrence. That's Republicans talk about deterrence, Democrats talk about rehabilitation. Now, the last thing that we have not discussed was the tax section, which is generally conservative Christians' favorite section. That was sarcasm. So what I want to do is to simply point to this, and we'll close. First Samuel 8, verses 15 to 17 says that a tax of 10% or more is tyrannical. Here's why. The tithe is 10%. If the state claims as much or more than God, it is claiming equality with God. So it's a curse that when there's a king in Israel, they're going to take 10% or more. You owe up to, not matching, but right below 10%. The rest you pay because not of duty, but because it would be imprudent Not pay it because someone is mugging you. That's the reality. The state has no right to claim 10% or more. You pay the rest of that. You don't lie, so you can't lie about the amount you're making, right? And so, if you're going to say what you are making, you could choose to not comply. Do they have a right to know that you've made what you've made? You could not comply, but if if you don't comply, you will be punished. And if you comply and tell them how much you've made and then pay less than that, you will be punished. And so the honest truth is you pay the 9.99% because God tells you to pay up to that amount, and the rest of it you pay as a ransom and a tribute. That is the oppression that we suffer by having an over large government that does not accept the law of God. And so may God spare us from that oppression. But that's the reality. So, comments, questions, objections from the voting members, and those with speaking rights. Mr. Cordova. Uh,
1: Thank you, Larissa. My question is related to uh, filling a civil magistrate position. Is my assumption correct that you are to order your own, for a man that desires a position, a civil magistrate, uh, to fill the
0: position? Hopefully, a well-worried
1: Christian man. First, he orders his own life. Should he pursue the civil magistrate position
0: uh, first, or should he pursue a position of elder? So, the it's important that the that a Christian man have his own life in order as an individual, his household in order, and then that he pursue public office. Public office in the church or in the state would depend if the church you're a part of has a sufficient number of officers, then that would not require that prioritization. You could then seek civil office over the state office. It's possible to hold both offices, uh, that we need to be careful that we not think of the church and the state as being mixed institutions, but there's nothing unlawful about the individual holding a church office and a state office. The only thing, people will sometimes point to the fact that the priest and the king were not able to be the same before Christ. Well, that's because the priests had to be from the line of Levi and the king had to be from the line of Judah, right? So, so trying to hold both offices was an assertion of being Messiah in that context. And so uh, Christ came from the line of Judah, and there's a new priest order, right? It's actually not new. It's the old one. It's the Melchizedekian order, which le- the Levitical order paid tithes to in the loins of Abraham, right? So, so that's why you can, it's not unlawful to hold both. Melchizedek was a prophet, priest, king. So, um, so, but you ought to seek to see your church in good order before you seek to see your state in good order so there's an order of operations and there's a time when it's fitting for a man to go seek to be a magistrate and not seek to be an officer and that's when the church is in good order um, and the magistracy somebody good needs to fill it thank you great thank you okay Mr. Nye thank
1: you for your teaching I uh, just a couple questions to, to uh, feedback on a question that Ed, uh, Edward asked. Um, we know the qualifications for public office in terms of state, Exodus uh, 21, I think. I think it's
0: 1821.
1: Yes. Um, Exodus 1821. Should uh, a man who is pursuing public office also Need to meet the qualifications of of an officer per um, Second Timothy and Titus, like in, in terms of um, in terms of meeting those character qualifications. or Is that
0: not necessary? I think the qualifications for the civil magistrate are different than the qualifications for ecclesiastical office.
1: That makes sense. Okay. And then the second thing I just wanted to ask for clarification. Um, Toward the end of your teaching, when we were talking about taxes, um, you were talking about when the, the government asks you how much you make. You cannot lie. That's 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 true. Um, you said very quickly that the government has the right to know how much you make. Is that assuming that they ask? If they ask you a question, do you have? Do they have a right to know how much? You I just wanted to make sure I
0: understood what you said. Yeah, so if there are lawful taxes, then they have to be based upon something, and so you have to tell some basis for that. So assessments of property or incomes of persons or uh, per capita taxes, um, customs on the transportation of goods and uh, the searching of goods for security reasons that are uh, legitimate, which is uh, hard to talk about in a brief way. Um so those are the things that we see biblical basis for taxation. So customs are, are essentially like excise taxes or tariffs and taxes are taxes on property and persons That's what the Greek words there are typically used for. So you have to have some basis about knowing what property somebody has in order to tax them properly.
1: Excellent. So I understand you say that because there are lawful taxes and a lawful balance to tax, that, that gives that justification of the state to, 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 to know how much, like, like, but, but because our tyr- tyrannical state has gone much beyond that, because those lawful things, we are, we are obliged to, to they, are, they have a right to ask for those lawful purposes, even though they've gone far beyond
0: There's a place for godly resistance in the form of refusing to give information that if a state were legitimate, they would have a right to, but in an illegitimate state that you can refuse obedience unto. So I don't have time to go into that in much detail right now. Uh, We'll be talking about just war next time, and in that we'll include just wars as relates to lesser magistrates and the right to resist by disobedience. And so we'll look at the scripture texts that deal with that, like Paul fleeing, you know, running my favorite story about Paul, him running away from the police, right? So, okay, so hopefully that answers your question. Yes, thank you. Okay, great. So, uh,
1: my question is, basically the whole uh, Romans 13, in my opinion, is giving a justification for monarch. So, it's saying uh, authority of God and monarch essentially was like a king governed from uh, a god essentially, and it's And then it goes back to Jesus as the king of kings. So I see that as a hierarchy of him being king over kings and not king of, like, democratically elected officials or whatever. So I want to know your opinion on all of Christian history was basically monarchs, and then America was a revolution to make a republic, and that's the actual Christian government, but all the Christian monarchs from all of Christian history
0: before were not not good. Great. Thank you. Good question. So... Uh, there is a text in First Peter, I think that talks about the idea that we 're to be subject to all human creations, and the creation is specifically talking about offices, so the form of government is not necessary for the legitimacy of a government, so you could have a monarch or you could have a republic, and there could be a lawful government. Um, when we look at the king of Israel, there was a legitimate king that there was a duty to obey, but the form of government tends towards tyranny. The government that God established in Israel. Um, is a republic with the election of elders that meet and there's a central council of 70 and there's a curse in first samuel chapter eight for the seeking to replace god as king to put a human king in place and you mentioned the idea of christ he's obviously the, the god man and so him as king he is the king and all magistrates serve that king as far as they are legitimate and all church officers serve that king as far as they are legitimate they're both ministers of god ministers of christ and if um if they abuse their power, then they are rebelling against Christ and they're tyrants. Um, and so that would apply to kings or to republics. Um, so I am not denying that kings can have a lawful claim on our obedience. Um, and although I do think there is an ideal form that is a republic, that that's established in the Mosaic law, uh, that and that human kings are dangerous apart from Christ, um, that we owe obedience to legitimately installed kings. Um, until they act with tyranny and need to be potentially resisted. Does that answer? Okay. Thank you. Okay. Great. Then let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would bless it to our souls. We ask that you would help us to have a right understanding of what your word teaches. We ask that you would help falsehood to be knocked down and truth to stand. I ask that you would Give us wisdom in knowing how to deal with the difficulties of uh, tyrannical authority and at the same time being grateful for all the blessings that we've received of elements of our law order that restrain tyranny against us. We ask that you would help us to make use of those elements now and that you would cause godly magistrates who acknowledge Christ, acknowledge the authority of his word, who want to see biblical justice administered, and Christian liberty preserved, that you would cause those men to be put into authority over us. We ask that you would give us strength and wisdom and courage, and that you would help us to be able to bear up under persecution and to not flee in a way that is sinful, but to flee persecution in noble ways, to be able to regroup and to be able to accomplish things rather than a selfish abandoning of duties. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.